Consider the Greek goddess of justice, bronze woman in a toga with a blindfold covering her eyes to make her be fair. Her scales held up to measure the balance of crime and punishment, no consideration given to individual influence. Nothing ever really balances in those scales. Maybe you're right. Maybe there's no such thing as justice in the sense of some kind of real reparation of a wrong. No eye for an eye, no matter what, especially historical justice or climate justice. But over the long haul, that's what we have to try for. Bending the arc and all that. No matter what happened before, that's what we can do now. You just heard excerpts from Chapter 9 of Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel Ministry for the Future, a chapter where he introduces the character Tatiana, a Russian lawyer who is engaged in lawsuits on behalf of future generations and young children to try and force governments to take action on climate change. And lawsuits like that are our topic today for episode two of Climate Futures at Harvard, a podcast exploring social, technical, and economic solutions to climate change. This season, we're following along with Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel, Ministry for the Future, talking to experts, activists, and Harvard professors about some of the big ideas that Robinson presents in his novel. Today, we're very lucky to be talking to someone who is engaged in bending the arc herself, Kimberly Willis, an attorney at Our Children's Trust, which actually was shouted out by Robinson in the form of the fictionalized Children's Trust. Kimberly, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, so my name is Kimberly Willis. I'm a staff attorney at Our Children's Trust, which is a nonprofit law firm. We're based in Eugene, Oregon, but we bring climate litigation cases all over the world. And you know, our, our bread and butter is we bring cases on behalf of youth to protect their constitutional rights to a stable climate. Great. Okay. Could you tell me a little bit first about the history of the organization? How long have you been around? How did you get started? Yeah. So our founder is Julia Olson. She started Our Children's Trust about 10 years ago um, because she was working in other nonprofit arenas doing, I believe, regulatory enforcement work. You know, Julia really wanted to find a systemic solution to the climate crisis. And that's, you know, what our cases focus on. And we'll hear a lot more about those cases over the course of this talk. But first, why work on behalf of children? Well, you know, if you look at children and future generations, they're the ones that are disproportionately impacted by climate change. And, you know, they're more susceptible to health impacts because their bodies are still growing and developing. They're outside more often. Um, and this this planet is becoming increasingly uninhabitable. And, you know, great, a great example is a study that just came out showing that today's children will experience three times more climate disasters than their grandparents. So these cases are arguing that these disproportionate impacts are unlawful, you know, and, and one of the ways we do that, we, one of our legal hooks, you know, what is the law or the right that the government is infringing upon is the equal protection clause. And these cases argue that the government is discriminating against a group, which is uh, the youngest generation and future generations. They're actually harmed by their actions, exacerbating climate change. And you know, it's really a huge inju injustice because adult generations have relied on this fossil fuel energy to the detriment of the future. You know, you're you're essentially forcing younger generations to co-sign onto a debt that uh, the current adults are defaulting on. And 
there's going to be a huge price to pay for that in the future because the efforts to mitigate all the impacts of climate change to um, reduce fossil fuel pollution is falling on their shoulders. I'm really compelled by that as a moral argument, partly maybe because I'm a member of that younger generation and partly because I'm still old enough to look at my younger siblings and kind of think about the world that they're going to grow up in. But I'm surprised that these so-called rights of younger people are enshrined in the Constitution, I mean, legally protected. Yeah, well, the Equal Protection Clause is part of the 14th Amendment. Um, And, you know, essentially, the government has to treat similarly situated groups the same. And if they're going to discriminate against one, they're going to treat one group separately. Um, And there is a constitutional fundamental right involved there, like the fundamental right to a stable climate system. Um, You know, layman's way of saying it would be they have to have a really good reason. And the lawyer's way of saying it would be they have to meet strict scrutiny, um, which is essentially a very high standard where the government has to show they have a compelling interest that's narrowly tailored to treating this group dissimilarly. Um, And, you know, frankly, the government can't justify treating the younger generations differently here because they know that their actions are going to have disproportionate impacts on this younger generation. They are pushing off all of the impacts onto them, all of the costs, and it's it's fundamentally unjust. So besides lawsuits using this 14th Amendment tool, using this argument that the younger generation is being treated differently, what other attacks have lawyers been taking in climate litigation? And Maybe why are these 14th Amendment lawsuits on behalf of younger generations playing a unique role, if they are, in this legal landscape? Yeah, there's a lot of different strategies you can take to climate litigation. You know, like we talked about, there's challenging regulations. For example, if you the Clean Air Act will regulate how many emissions you're allowed to uh, pollute into the atmosphere. Um, you could sue corporations directly. There's a team of lawyers that is representing some cities and counties in California, directly suing like Exxon, Chevron, and other oil and gas companies um, under a public nuisance theory um, to try to get funding for those cities to help them mitigate climate change caused in large part by those corporations. And then there's the strategy that our children's trust takes, which is bringing suits against the government for their affirmative actions exacerbating climate change. So, you know, there's different approaches to climate litigation. One of them is, for example, looking at one coal-fired power plant and saying, you are polluting too much and it's violating these regulations. So we are going to sue you and force you to pollute less. And that's great. And there's certainly a place for that. But that is just one coal-fired power plant in the nation. And it's not just about one coal-fired power plant. It's not about one natural gas plant. It's not about um, just emissions from transportation. This is about looking at all of the greenhouse gas emissions from whatever jurisdiction we're suing in, whether it's a state or the federal government or another country, and ensuring that we can get the court to declare that the constitutional right to a stable climate exists so that those governments will conform their conduct to that and stop permitting these fossil fuel facilities. You know, and, and there's a lot of other things that other governments will do to promote fossil fuels. They'll, they'll give tax subsidies. Um, they'll fund research and development of different fossil fuel technologies. And, you know, all of these 
the subsidies makes the price of fossil fuels a lot less than it normally would be in a competitive market. So we're really getting to the core of what are government actions that are exacerbating climate change and how can we systematically address all of them at once instead of one at a time. Um, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, reported in uh, 2021, uh, a paper by Ian Perry, Simon Black, and Nate Vernon, that globally in 2020 alone, fossil fuel subsidies were $5.9 trillion, which is 6.8% of world GDP. Uh, and this can be explicit subsidies, and also they say undercharging, environmental costs, and foregone consumption taxes. Efficient fuel pricing, according to them in 2025, could reduce global CO2 emissions 36% below baseline levels. But just keep in mind, $5.9 trillion in one year, which is about $11 million every minute. So your guys' effort at Our Children's Trust to try and stop the government from this subsidizing of fossil fuels could have absolutely massive effects. You're trying to influence huge structures that are working in favor of fossil fuels through the judiciary. If you want to like zoom out for kind of the big picture and the role that the court plays in these climate lawsuits, the court's role in this being the judiciary is in part to look to the other branches conduct, like the executive agencies, the president, the governor, and decide whether it is lawful or not. And if that conduct, and here the conduct we're challenging is the actions that perpetuate this fossil fuel system. If that violates you know, regulations, laws, or constitutional rights, then the court can declare that it's unlawful, which should guide future actions that the government takes. Or it can issue injunctive relief, which is essentially commanding that the government does something to comply with the law. These corporations don't have permission to pollute unless the government gives them that permission. They can't construct facilities unless the government permits them. And at every step in the process, the government is really involved in their model for so how they're building their quite industry. convincing in terms of why you want to conduct these lawsuits on behalf of young people. Uh, and the other part of trying to understand the broader goals of Our Children's Trust is what you're aiming to achieve in bringing these cases. On your website, you say science-based, legally binding climate recovery. Could you walk me through those components? Maybe why science-based, why legally binding, and practically, what does it add up to? Yeah, so, you know, what we're asking the courts for ultimately is a declaration that the government's conduct is unconstitutional, and that should guide their future actions. You know, in our system of government, we've there's this underlying presumption that the other branches will abide by an order of the court. And, you know, what we mean by science-based solutions is what does a government need to do to uphold the right to a stable climate system? And best available science today tells us that we need to lower the concentration of carbon dioxide to 350 parts per million by 2100 to have a stable climate system. So, you know, when governments see this declaration of the constitution by the court, they will have to go back and look at all of their actions, what their policies are, what decisions they've made and say, you know, and ask themselves, what do we need to change so that by 2100, we are doing our share to lower carbon dioxide concentrations to 350 parts per million. 
And, you know, you'll often see targets like 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius from the Paris Agreement. And those are really political targets. Those aren't based on today's best available science. Um, and using a measurement like how hot or how much hotter average temperatures are becoming is more of measuring the symptom of the problem. It's like if you had a virus and your goal was to lower your fever, you know, really your goal should be to eradicate the virus. It shouldn't just be to get rid of one symptom. So the temperature on the planet is one symptom of the problem of climate change. And really that solution is just 350 parts per million CO2 by 2100. And you mentioned about like legally binding and like non-legally binding and the difference there. And that I think is, you know, if you have something that's legally binding, it's enforceable and you can hold someone accountable. I think, you know, one of the themes that I keep going back to is the judiciary is a mechanism to hold the government accountable. Um, and if you have something that's non-legally binding, you know, usually that's a voluntary commitment. Um, you'll see companies participate in a lot of greenwashing around this, where they're committing to lower their emissions by a certain amount. Um, and you know, that, that's all unenforceable. So if they fail to achieve that, there's not much that you it can do. It seems to me that a lot of so-called climate action by governments has been basically symbolic and hasn't had a significant impact on how much carbon is actually physically put into the atmosphere. And I think one thing that is really on people's minds is how can these things be made enforceable? I mean, I think that's a major, major priority of the climate movement going forward. And you're seeing youth all over the country and Greta Thunberg at COP26 airing that frustration that promises have been made because you know everyone knows now it's undeniable that humans are causing climate change and politicians have promised that they will make a lot of actions and movements on this and they haven't followed through. So it is really important to hold them accountable to their promises. And, you know, the best way to do that is to, you know, figure out what laws uphold your rights. You know, what does the constitution say that you're entitled to? And then the whole judiciary system just exists to uphold those and to resolve these disputes. What is the life cycle of these cases from gestation to final ruling? Yeah, well, it often starts with young people reaching out to us who've heard about our work and want us to bring a lawsuit representing them in their state. Um, you know, oftentimes these are groups of friends that have started their own climate action organizations together and they're fighting against coal trains that are proposed in their regions. They want to stop pipelines from being installed or they've been breathing in all of these noxious fumes from power plants. Um, so they're also you know, fighting these battles and then looking for a bigger solution. And you know, when they connect with us, you know, our job is to look at you know, the different constitutional provisions and laws in the states that they're in. And you know, look at what has their government done exactly to encourage and support fossil fuels in their jurisdiction. And then, you know, one other huge piece of that is how they've been harmed. You know, we hear their stories about the different climate change impacts they've experienced. You know, there's 
been an increase in hurricanes in the east, which has brought a lot of extreme precipitation, flooding, high winds, damage from trees. And in the west, there's been all of these wildfires. There's been extreme drought going on for quite a long time. And you know, wildfire smoke has really impacted a lot of the young people we speak with, especially those with asthma. So once we get all of those um, nailed down, um, you know, we put all of that information into the complaint, which is the first document we file with the court, which sets out all of the youth's injuries, what their claims are, what we are asking the court to do. Um, and then from there, you know, we hope that it's a one to two year process to get to trial or, you know, if the defendants, the government's willing to engage with us in settlement, we're typically open to that as well. Um, but for example, in Juliana, that case has been going on since 2015 and it's 2021 now. So certainly many years longer than we hoped the case would go on for without even having a single day of trial yet. So we'll talk more about why these cases take so long. Uh, but, but first, I want to ask you a little bit of a personal question so that we can imagine your work a little bit better. What's your favorite and maybe least favorite part of the cases that you do? I think my favorite thing is, like, and this might sound cheesy, but it's empowering the youth. You know, and when, when I dreamed of becoming a lawyer, like I wanted to be the kind of lawyer that that stood behind the scenes and did all this foundational work so that someone else could step up and say, you know, I've suffered an injustice and this is how I have been wronged and to give them a fighting chance to get justice. So being able to do that as a job is just really wonderful. And, you know, a dream come true for me, although, you know, I know how difficult it can be for those plaintiffs to stand up and say all of the ways that they've been harmed and, how they're scared for their future. And it takes so much bravery to stand up there and do that for, you know, for the public, for the judges and for the world to really see. Um, the least enjoyable part of my job is, you know, explaining to the plaintiffs that they are, you know, putting the fate of their case in the hands of a judge in a legal system where, a government that should be protecting them is trying to actively stop them from going to trial. And you know, it can be challenging to explain that to children that are you know, 12, 13, even younger, um, you know, because you want to have faith in our legal system. You want to have faith in the judiciary. Um, but it can certainly be challenging when the government's trying to, to stop you at, at every turn. So I think that's probably the hardest part of my job. That's a wonderful answer. And I think very evocative. Um, let's get back to the uh, question of why these cases are facing so much opposition from judges. Uh, there are two main legal principles that judges tend to invoke as a reason not to hear your cases or to reject your cases. And these are standing and redressability. Do you think you could talk a little bit about your Juliana case, the difficulties that you've been facing, and maybe explain those legal principles for those of us who don't know? Yeah, I'd love to give you an update on where we're at in our federal case, Juliana versus United States. You know, we filed that case in 2015 in the District Court of Oregon. Judge Aiken said that 
you know, there is this constitutional right to a stable climate system. And um, that case was heading towards trial, but has been thwarted by uh, repeated writ of mandamus motions by the federal government, which is essentially an emergency petition asking a higher court to review what the District Court of Oregon is doing. It was up on a writ of mandamus, I believe, to the Ninth Circuit, where they were looking at issues of uh, whether their plaintiffs had standing. And standing is a legal concept that says the court will not open its doors to you and hear your case unless you've suffered an injury. The defendants are the cause of that injury. And the court can remedy that injury somehow, whether you know, through a declaration or commanding that the defendants do something, the court has a role to play. Judges seem to feel comfortable with issuing declaratory relief, which is just saying what the law means. And they're more uncomfortable with issuing injunctive relief, which is uh, demanding that the government take some sort of action. And what we request when we do request injunctive relief is for the government to develop a plan to align their conduct with something that will achieve that 350 parts per million CO2 by 2100. So the Ninth Circuit was looking at the redressability and uh, they felt like our request for the government to develop a remedial plan for them to command the government to do something, that that was beyond the scope of their jurisdiction. So they remanded the case back down to the district court. Um, and at the district court, we have moved to amend our complaint, that first document you file with the court, which sets out all of your injuries and your legal claims. And we are just asking to remove our request for that remedial plan and move that, remove the injunctive relief that the Ninth Circuit had an issue with and just leave our request for declaratory relief. So in, instead of ordering the um, government to come up with a plan, if the court can simply declare that the conduct is unconstitutional, then we expect that the Biden administration would abide by that judicial declaration. And that would still provide the plaintiffs and the youth in this case with a meaningful redress for their injuries, um, meaning even if it doesn't solve climate change, it's still going to help them and it's going to make climate change not as bad as it would have been. Okay, so to review, defendants have to have standing to even get their case heard. Standing means you've clearly suffered some injury. The people that you're suing are in some way the cause of that injury, so you have to be able to prove that. And you also have to be able to show that the court can do something about it. The court can redress or remedy the issue. And you guys have had issues with standing and specifically with the redressability prong of standing in the Juliana case. Uh, are there other legal obstacles that you've been facing or that judges have been citing besides those two? You know, the, the judges say that it's, you know, a separation of powers issue, that this should be left to the legislature. Um, but really, there are numerous examples of cases where judges have seen a constitutional violation and ordered the government to take steps to address it. These sometimes judges think these cases are complicated, but there's also examples of cases that are really complex that the judges have decided to get involved in. Um, you know, there's water rights cases where you'll have, 
you know, tens to hundreds of different people claiming a stake to that water. And the judge will appoint someone to oversee uh, a case where they determine who has rights to how much water along this waterway. A lot of these cases, uh, frankly, don't make sense. Uh, the dissents tend to really hit the nose um, in identifying why these cases should go forward. So have you seen the opposition that you've been facing change over time? I mean, could you give us a broad picture of how your cases have been evolving? Um, so you're really starting to see the tide turn with these cases. And, you know, there have been some successes internationally with lawsuits, like Urgenda is a famous one in the Netherlands um, that several years ago was a huge climate victory. Um, and there have you know, been a lot of suits since then that are you know still in progress. I think you can expect in litigation like this, which is, you know, kind of novel. We're asking the courts to we're presenting the courts with evidence that a lot of times they haven't seen before. And these sorts of cases, you know, you expect to see some setbacks before you achieve victory. Um, so I think we're on the path now. And, you know, we're starting to see those victories crop And up. hopefully we'll hear more about that kind of international uh, litigation especially as it pertains to indigenous peoples in a future episode of Climate Futures. Can I also just ask a clarifying question? When you say that you're bringing new types of evidence, what kind of evidence does that refer to? Well, there's there's a book that recently came out called They Knew by Gus Smith. And he's one of our experts in the Juliana case that really dives into how over the last five decades and more, the federal government knew that fossil fuel pollution was increasing the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, was warming our climate, and would lead to these catastrophic failures of ecosystems, would lead to hotter temperatures, would lead to climate disasters and events. And they chose to continue investing in fossil fuels regardless and to continue promoting them. And, you know, that is a type of really hard evidence that we bring in all of our climate lawsuits. And I think it's one of the strengths of them, too, is bringing all of this information to light for the judges to see and for the public to see what their government has been doing for decades. That's really interesting, because at least to me, the Exxon News story was pretty explosive news, but I didn't realize it could be used as legal evidence as well. So as we're seeing these kinds of transformations in the way that climate law looks, what is your vision as an organization or just your personal vision, Kimberly, for the future of climate legislation? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to work on our legal strategy to learn from the cases that we've brought to learn from what judges have said, you know, we're really inspired in the cases that we've lost by the really powerful dissents that the justices have written um, saying that if it was up to them, if they were in the majority, they would hear our case and they would let us go to trial. Um, so I'm really looking forward to you know, seeing the tide turn and seeing more judges take that courageous step and let us present our evidence at a trial and really judge our case on the merits of all of the facts. As an example of one of those dissents, I asked Kimberly to read a quote. Uh, in this case, the dissent in their Washington case, which is written by Chief Justice Gonzalez and Justice Whitener. And they said, 
the court should not avoid its constitutional obligations that protect not only the rights of these youths, but all future generations who will suffer from the consequences of climate change. And we're starting to see that these justices get it. They understand the gravity of these cases, the gravity of holding these children's future in their hands. And I think that they're becoming more courageous to stand up and to do their job, which is to say what the law is, to declare constitutional rights. That's really powerful. And I think building off of this idea of evolving towards a better future, how would our children's trust or you personally imagine a legal system that was designed to safeguard the rights of children in future generations would look? Yeah, and I think this gets to what the um, Ministry for the Future book kind of hints at, which is standing for future generations. Now, we make decisions today thinking about the immediate consequences of our actions and not thinking, oh, what will this look like 100 years into the future, 200 years, 300 years? You know, even if we won't be around, you know, we all have finite lifetimes to see the fruits of our labor. It is still a very worthwhile endeavor to act now to ensure that the generations you won't even meet can enjoy the things that you had and hopefully lead even better lives. Um, So if I could redesign the judicial system, it would force every decision we make to have that longitudinal outlook and to not look at, will this benefit people today, next year? It'll say, will this help us now? And will this also help us a hundred years from now? Thank you so much, Kimberly, for your time and for a really great discussion. Uh, And I also want to say, keep up the great work. I think you guys are doing something really important and really very difficult. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Bringing uh, novel legal arguments in court is uh, daunting at times, but we like I, I work with the smartest and nicest people I've ever met. So it's just inspiring working with them every day and getting to talk to these youth every day. So it's it's a dream, even though we're tackling an existential crisis. You know, if you're going to do anything with your life, it seems like worthwhile work. Kimberly, if any of our listeners want to learn more about the work that our Children's Trust is doing, what should they do? Yeah, if you're interested in learning more about our work or getting involved, or if you're a young person who is interested in holding your government accountable for violating your constitutional rights, you can find us at ourchildrenstrust.org to learn more. All right, this has been Climate Futures at Harvard, a podcast exploring social, technical, and economic solutions to climate change. This episode, we heard from Kimberly Willis about lawsuits on behalf of children and future generations. Next up, we're going to be talking about solar geoengineering. We're going to be talking about climate blockchain. Please stay tuned for more episodes exploring big solutions to big problems. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury, your host, and this has been Climate Futures.